0: We'd like to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for Wednesday, March the 22nd, 2017. Well, good evening. We are going to have perhaps a monologuish uh, show. I'm actually not sure. If uh, we're going to be able to have some guests join us, um, my name is Wes Fryer, and I'm joining you from Oklahoma City, as usual, but Jason Neifer, my normal co-host, has been on the road on assignment for a number of weeks, and I think maybe in Portland at the NCCE conference currently, but there was a slight chance that he would be able to join. <clears throat> we had arranged for Jen Carey to to be able to join tonight as a guest, but she had has uh, an emergency situation that has come up. And so we are giving her a rain check to be able to, uh, join us a little bit later. So it may be that, uh, I will not be, not be joined, but, uh, we've got a, um, some other folks that, that join us from time to time. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll just see. I've, I've, uh, sent some other, some other invitations and it may be that Jason, uh, and maybe even Eric Langhorst will be able to join in, uh, a little bit later, but, I think I'm going to go ahead and do the show because uh, it's been two weeks since we've done a show. There's a lot of articles, uh, a lot to talk about, and certainly it's a lot more interesting, I am sure, as a uh, person watching the show to be able to um, hear more than one perspective on these kinds of things, but uh, I'm going to attempt here to uh, get the the pop-out chat to come up, and one of the benefits of being able to... Have, have the show live as being able to if we have anybody who who joins us live to be able to uh, interact with them with the the live chat that we have on youtube so um, as a way of introduction, the Edtech situation room is uh, over a year old now. we i guess started um, a year ago in January. Um, originally, we started off as an an end of year show, so we did the year in ed tech, and that was a a joint collaboration between Jason Neifer up in uh, Montana. Um, Eric Langhorst out in Liberty, Missouri in the Kansas City area, and myself, and then uh, ended up just deciding to make it a regular show. So our format is to take a look at the latest technology news that has made headlines and basically look at that from a educational slant. And so um, we usually have some common themes that we're going to talk about, which as as tonight, uh, I don't know, we probably could, if we wanted to, we could kind of call this the the security and surveillance show, uh, but we're going to talk about some other things in addition to that as well. Um, so I think I will actually start off, I'm going to, I'll tell a little bit, um, I'll start off with, an, with an, an Apple Insider story. So this, uh, and by the way, if you would like to access the show notes for tonight's show and all of our shows. You can find those at edtechsr.com slash links on edtechsr.com. You can also find archived audio and video versions, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. So those are, are all places where uh, you can find us. So I'm going to start off tonight with a Apple Insider article. Amazon ads send to Kindle, to Kindle for iOS, CarPlay, support to Amazon Music. And this was Apple Insider on March the 12th. Um, So this is pretty, pretty exciting for Kindle users. Um, Today, I actually had an opportunity, thanks to Miguel Gulen, who was our guest here on the EdTech Situation Room two weeks ago, to jump into a Lunch and Learn webinar that TCEA hosts um, once a week. And the topic was... um, Good educational blogs and podcasts to follow, as well as tools to use to you know find good ideas and so I was talking about flipboard and pocket, which is a wonderful app as well as nuzzle, which has become a little less of, of a useful tool for me um, but I actually demonstrated this because one of these one of the ideas we talked about in the webinar was that you know you don't always have time to process. Articles as you find them, and so it 's very helpful to uh, have a place that you can be, you know basically put those just like you would you know in an inbox or, or you know put them in a file folder so you can open that up later and go to it and The app and website pocket is really great for that, but Amazon has now uh, enabled users to send articles to Kindle now in the demo that I did today, which is my my first time I was doing a, a live demo from Flipboard. It actually just saved the link from Flipboard. It didn't save the whole article. So it looks to me, based on that, that that you have to be in a web browser like Safari if you're on, uh, say, an iPad. But then you can click the share square, and you add, save to Kindle or send to Kindle, and then it will go into your Kindle library and appear. Now, that kind of functionality was present previously in the Kindle app, but you had to use an email address, and the articles that you sent weren 't necessarily formatted well and What this article from Apple Insider says is that um, once you send this to Kindle using their new feature, it actually formats the text so that it is reflowable, and you can you know use your text tools to increase the text size or make it smaller or whatever you want to do and um, you know basically just read it like you would a kindle a Kindle uh, Book or any any other uh, piece of content that you've uh, downloaded and purchased from Amazon to read on your Kindle or or your Kindle app. So I think this is great news. Um, Educationally, I think that all of us need to have what Jason would call an information trap. And so that means a place that we can, um, you know, put information that we're going to be able to find later and we're going to be able to um, flexibly, you know, not just read it, but you know, use it. And so um, I'm going to try to retweet here my live stream. One of the mysteries, by the way, of EdTech SR has been and it didn't happen tonight, but <laughs> many weeks our our YouTube channel will auto tweet a link to the live stream and it appears in different languages. And I haven't known why that's happened. So tonight it's in English and it all it all looks fine. But anyway, uh, check that out. That is a is a good new feature um, that has been added to the Kindle app and, and actually just, you know, for, in, for anybody who is, uh, who is a Kindle user, whether you're, you know, using a, an actual Kindle. On a related note, I have received a couple tweets from the same person in the last week to two weeks where that, where after I've shared a link to a book on Amazon, their tweet has said, you know, don't promote Amazon, promote your local indie bookstore. And today I had actually sent a message, uh, to them on Twitter to say, hey, is this a, an if this, then that auto response? I mean, it's only been two messages, so it's not that irritating. But, um, you know, I personally love Amazon, then their ebooks, service. Uh, it's a tremendous service. Um, as an example of, of how transformative it is, our family uh, this last week was on spring break. And so we went up to actually the High Sierras. We went uh, out to California on I-40, which is about a two-day trip, about 24 hours in the car. And uh, we were staying at a wonderful, wonderful family camp called Montecito Resort. And it is really just next to the uh, Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon National Park. Anyway, our youngest daughter, who's a seventh grader, had been reading one of the books from the Twilight series and had the actual book but had finished it and you know was in one of those moments where she was bummed that she didn't you know, we di- we didn't have an opportunity to go to another bookstore, and you know we're up you know in the mountains. And we're not coming down for you know four four or five days. So anyway, they did have Wi-Fi. Um, interestingly, that was satellite. It was pretty pretty zippy. It's the fastest satellite internet I think I would ever experienced. And she's able to download the next book in the in the series on Kindle and really enjoys it. So I, I'm actually pretty thrilled for that because she had not been a real fan of reading on a, on a device and uh, we've got an old Kindle. It's the generation before the paper white, so it doesn't have the backlighting, uh, but it's still really cool. Um, we have it in a case that looks like a leather bound book. So it's kind of cool. It has a, you know, a feel of, of being a real book there, but um she, was pretty excited about being able to um, actually take that to school and read a book that they were doing. So anyway, I think digital reading and the affordances, because uh, this is something that Rachel talked about, you know, she's been using the dictionary quite a bit um, in that book that they were reading for school, being able to just tap on the word. There's the definition, you know, words that she may have uh, skipped over or, or not, you know, taken the time to look up. It's just so easy and quick to be able to find a definition that that, has been a game changer. So um, that is our first article. Now, normally, if we had another guest, and this, like I said, I, I very well could be joined by, by uh, another person here, in, uh, in the show. And if we do, that would be great. But normally, we will, we will, uh, kind of both give, or sometimes we have, we've had three of us here on the show, and we'll give our opinions about different articles, and then we'll, we'll pass the baton to another article that somebody else would like to talk about but tonight you are just stuck with me unless I would go grab a member of my family that would probably not be very excited to be on the show. So um, we will we will press on. Um, I think I'm going to go to the top of the links for tonight and talk a little bit about security. So one of the things that we do sometimes with, with articles and links that we share on the show is – um, organize them by category, and so there is a series of articles that I've been reading about phishing. This is phishing with with a PH. for the record. There, that was my dog hitting the dining room table. There, so we're sorry about the the uh, unprofessional jiggle. If you're actually watching the video version of this, um, so phishing is is a method by which folks are doing identity theft, or they are um, you know compromising people's networks, their organizational. Um, servers and gaining gaining access that either they use maliciously or sometimes you know it could be done for a prank but a lot of times it you know it's it's due to take somebody's identity and take their banking information. Um, you know, or sometimes embarrass them, or embarrass the organization. There's all kinds of of reasons. So, the first article here is from uh, KOCO, which is one of our local news channels in the Oklahoma City metro area, from March 5th, 2017, and the title is "Phishing Scam Compromises Yukon School Employees' Personal Information." And the first thing I want to say about this is, because UConn was the school district that, that I uh, worked in for about four years prior to my current job as the director of technology at the Cassidy School. I am not by any means sharing this to throw them under the bus or, you know, to, to just shine a negative light. What this, what the way this resonates with me, I mean, this is a local article. This isn't phishing that's happening out in California or it's out in New York or it's, you know, somewhere that's far distant. I mean, this is right here in our area. And uh, hackers got, it says, got their hands on everything from social security numbers to bank account details for more than a thousand school district employees in Yukon. And so what happened was an email was sent to the HR department of the school district. And it was supposed to be from the superintendent. That's what it looked like. And it asked to send all of the W-2 tax information for all the employees in the district directly to the superintendent. And we have actually received these kinds of targeted attacks at our school as well. And I have mentioned on the show before, and we've had articles that say hospitals and schools are the number one and number two most prevalent target for ransomware attacks. And they are also very uh, big targets for phishing attacks. And so, you know, we've probably all received some kind of spam email from Nigeria and someone saying, you know, to transfer money or whatever like that. There's all kinds, there's millions of generic messages where somebody is trying to get you to, you know, send money or in, in the case of phishing, sometimes sometimes like this, it's to give information up. Sometimes it's to to compromise your account. We've received these kinds of messages at our school as well and I've had, I've talked to employees about these and, and fortunately, you know, employees have called and said, hey, got this weird message or, or maybe, or in some, at least one case, they just clearly knew. I mean, this is absolutely not. A legitimate email. Um, but uh, the, one of the lessons learned here is to just make absolutely sure before you share any kind of confidential information that you are sending it to the correct address. Because in this case, I'm sure it was a different email address, not a district email. Uh, but it was, you know, you can spoof things where you're making it look like, you know, it's from this person, but it's really not. Um, and that's, in email, I mean, usually you can look right at the address and see, "Hey, am I sending it to you know our our school email domain or not?" Uh, links can sometimes be a little bit, you know, more tricky. Um, but that's really one of the worst school-based uh, phishing attack stories that I've heard, and it was local. So that actually prompted me to write a post, and I've put this in the show notes as well. Uh, a couple days ago, in fact. I think I wrote this on our, when my wife was driving on our, on our way back from California. And the post is called, You Need to Be Talking About Phishing and Ransomware. And so, as a result of many of the conversations we've had here on the EdTech Situation Room, um, and my role as a technology director, I am just much more aware of what a big risk, uh, phishing and, and ransomware are. And so the point of that article that I wrote is to say these risks are real, just like this article about UConn schools points out, and we need to talk about them. It's not just the job of the... Uh, technology department or the, um, you know, IT director or whoever has formal responsibility, uh, for technology in your school district. It, it's everybody's responsibility. So I see that we have a live viewer and I'm glad that you're here. I don't know if that's Peggy or who that is, but we do have a live chat on the side of the YouTube channel. So if you want to say hello and let me know where you are checking in from, um we still have a faint possibility that Jason Neifer may be able to join us um and uh if not i think my plan is to to go ahead and uh and persist i will for the record say i had i reached out to um some other folks who have been on the show before just to to see and, and even some somewhat some that haven't um but uh you know it's sometimes it's challenging to uh to do to do a last last minute uh web show so Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and continue in the security strain and we'll just kind of, kind of touch on all these articles and then we'll go on to another section. Um, this article is also about phishing. This comes from Kim Commando on March the 16th, 2017. And the title is even tech savvy Gmail users are getting fooled by this phishing scam. And so I will share a shout out to my mother, Angie Fryer of Manhattan, Kansas, who uh, sent me this article, as mom sometimes does. She is a really big fan of Kim Commando. And for those of you that may be educators and, and focused on educational technology, Kim is a mainstream media tech guru, but she has a nationally syndicated radio show in the United States. I'm not sure if it's syndicated internationally outside, but uh, there's all kinds of really good information that she shares about technology. And in this case, the phishing scam is really, really tricky. Um, what the folks have done, the the coders have done in this case, um, the malicious black hat coders, because that's a good distinction to make. Hacking is not necessarily a bad thing if you're you know working to, to make something work that didn't work or putting things together. And in the context of uh, technology, we call folks that are hacking for good white hats and those that hack for nefarious or malicious purposes, black hat hackers what the black hats are doing in this case is they have written an algorithm so that if they gain access to your email account, they analyze the subject lines of emails that you have received in the past. And then they cause this phishing email to have a subject line exactly the same or similar to something you've had before. So immediately this is customized to messages that you've already seen But to take that a step further, it also, the, the code analyzes text and puts text that you have received before or is very similar to what you've received before in the body of the message. And what the message asks you to do is to click on the attachment, which I think looks like a PDF. But in fact, when you click on it, it asks you to authenticate to Google. So this is for Gmail users and they've created a page. that looks exactly like the official Google login page, except if you look at the address bar of where this is going, it is not going to accounts.google. It is actually going to data colon text slash. And then there's this text file that is, that it is trying to open locally. And if you put in your login credentials on that screen, Boom! The the hackers have your uh, have your um, account. So I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how they analyze. Well, I guess what it must do is it must analyze for uh, for other compromised accounts. This is Wes's guess. They're doing this to get access to your account, so they don't have your account emails to analyze. So it must be looking at an account of somebody else who's been compromised and you're in their address book. And so it's looking at those emails because it's definitely a phishing scam that is, is customized to previous messages. So I think that may be how it spreads, that it's something that, that other people, that people who are compromised, you know, it ends up sending from their inbox. And, I'm sure that you've received messages like this from people that say, please ignore that email. You just get a message because it, you know, at one time spam that was one of the things that spammers would do a lot is just blast out messages to, you know, an entire contact list um, or, or address book once they would gain access to somebody's account. So, um, the the third article here in the security series tonight is a article that says ransom attack locks democratic Senate state senators out of their computers. And this was actually on the Huffington post on March the 8th, 2017. And I think this was in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Pennsylvania lawmakers. And, um, this ransomware attack, um, you know caused all all of them to lose access to their to their email and to not not be able to access their computer systems at all uh, a few weeks ago, I had shared an article about or perhaps Jason had shared it. We talked about it that a hotel in Austria had been hacked, and that article actually was not exact was not fully accurate. Um, the hotel got hacked, and this had been the third time actually that this particular four star hotel was hacked, and they did have to pay or they chose to pay the ransomware um, uh, amount that the hackers were requiring in Bitcoin. Um, but the article had actually said everyone got locked in their rooms and that was not what happened. Um, they said, uh, I, uh, do a shout out to Doug Levin, who is, um, used to be with the U S department of education for educational technology. Um, but he shares a lot of great resources about security and ransomware. And he, uh, pointed out to me after I had written my article or my post this last week that um, yes, that hack happened and, and it was a bad hack, but the doors hadn't gotten locked. Anyway, both of these cases are, are, you know, things that are in the news. And, and one of the points that I make in the uh, post, you need to be talking about phishing and ransomware is that we should use these kinds of current events to talk with people that we are in communication with coworkers at school, Parents, um, students—you know, depending on their age—talk um, to, talk to them about phishing, about ransomware, about security, and then what we do about it. And I guess that's probably an important point to share. You know, in that article, I reference a December post that I wrote called "I think Give your Give your family the gift of digital security." But there's like eleven specific things that we can do to try and. You know, make our accounts more secure and also just be more proactive and savvy when it comes to, uh, to security. And so, um, two of the most important things are to use a password manager that allows us to use very long, random passwords, different passwords on each website that we use. And really, it's only been in the last year that I have been doing that faithfully, but I felt as a technology director, there's no way I could be giving, you know, this kind of advice. If I'm not walking that walk as well. And then the other thing is to turn on two-step verification on your accounts, uh, which means that, for instance, when I was in the mountains of California this this last week, um, I had access to Wi-Fi, but I didn't have access to... Um, to cell phone service where we were. Uh, and that was actually beneficial in, in one respect. But when I needed to log into one of my accounts that I hadn't set up a backup method for two step, I only had SMS messaging. I actually couldn't get into that account. I had to wait till we had come down from the mountains in order to, to get into that account. So setting up two step is good. Um, but I, I definitely think it's a good idea to to set up uh, backup methods, which can be email or um Google has a, has an app that's, that's used called Google Authenticator that's a backup to SMS. And so both of those are, are good. So the last security article that I will share is from WebRoot on February 23rd, 2017. And full disclosure, WebRoot is a company that creates anti-malware, you know, anti-hacking software. Um, the name of the article is Why Relying on Antivirus Signatures is Simply Not Enough Anymore. And the analysis is really good here. You know, we've had in the world of Windows-based computing, which I work in and and support, but personally, um, whenever I can, you know, especially for our family, but, you know, I'm fortunate also in a school environment to be able to work really heavily with Macintosh, Apple computers, as well as Chromebooks now. Um, we've had a lot of, we've had antivirus, right? Antivirus software does not exist on a Chromebook at this point, uh, and probably won't, uh, because Google is making that secure through their own operating system and, and through the browser. But, you know, the day is over when Apple or Macintosh users, you know, don't need to worry about, um, malware and, and phishing and these kinds of security issues. But what WebRuby is saying is the way antivirus software has worked for years, which is using signatures to identify a a problem and then verifying that and then pushing that out and notifying everybody. Um, it's, that's no longer viable because of the explosion of malware and these malicious programs. And so instead of, um, Using traditional antivirus, um, they're recommending, of course, themselves, they're recommending WebRoot software, which looks at what a program does and analyzes that. And actually, on that note, I think I might, um, add this as a, as another geek of the week. There is, there are a couple programs that I have started to run here on my computer. And let's see, I'm looking up at my taskbar to see. One of them is, oh, that's, yeah, okay, that's my VPN. I've installed a couple, couple new things here. Uh, one of them is called Little Snitch. And let's see if this is, uh, what that does is it alerts me whenever there is a program that is trying to phone home. Uh, so if it is, you know, whenever there is an outgoing connection that's being requested by a program, it pops up and says, hey, such and such. And a lot of times they're really weirdly named. Things that it's not like Microsoft Word, uh, it's some different kind of utility program, you know, is requesting a connection to such and such. And so that happens for incoming connections and for outgoing connections. And it can actually be a little overwhelming because. Depending on what you have installed and set up on your computer, there's all kinds of programs that make connections from you know things that are built into your operating system, like for Mac users with iCloud and with iTunes, you know um, Google Drive I've got installed, and so there's there's a lot of things that that it'll do to go out and talk to the servers and authenticate and that kind of thing. But anyway, that's not an antivirus or anti-malware program. But it definitely makes me much more aware of the kinds of connections that are happening in the background of my computer. And if something weird happens, because after you've been using it a while, you know, if you choose to authorize these connections, they don't pop up all the time. So if there's something new and something different, you get alerted to that. Um, and I'm just 90, 99% sure that's called little snitch. In fact, maybe I'll Google that really quick. And I will add that to the show notes. For tonight, Um if you know of a, a similar, you know, Windows program that does that, um let me know. Yeah, this is called Little Snitch. It says it's a host-based application firewall for Mac OS X. it can be used to monitor applications, preventing or permitting them to connect to attached networks through advanced rules. Um, there are firewalls that are built into our operating systems now. Windows has a firewall and Apple does as well. But those are a little bit more opaque, I guess, in terms of turning them on and all the things that are that are being blocked. And if you are a geek, um, then Little Snitch may be something that you, will appeal to you because it allows you to uh, have very granular control and awareness of what's going on on your computer. But in today's security environment, I think that's actually a really good thing. It's probably not a program that you know, the majority of users are going to, are going to want to have. And frankly, it can be kind of irritating when you're getting started with it. And there's all these things, you know, asking for permission uh, to connect, but it definitely uh, raises the awareness and um, is a different way of approaching security. So anyway, I'll come in that web Root article to you and I will conclude the the security segment of tonight's show um, with that article. But uh, I hope that You are – I need to come up with a good tagline to end the show every time. I think I've been saying something like, you know, be secure and be savvy. Uh, Cheryl Oakes, who um, I think will be on the show next week with Alice Barr. They're both educators from Maine who have been down in Brazil, I think in Brasilia, this week for a conference. Um, And we've had them on the show before, and they're some of my favorite podcasters from – sort of the dawn of podcasting in the mid 2000s with their seedlings group um, podcasting with Bob Sprenkel for years and years. Um, uh, Cheryl would always say, you know, over and out. Um, So, you know, stay secure and be savvy. I don't know if that's going to, if that's my, my conclusion or not, but it, it might not be the most exciting thing to talk about, but it is something that we need to visit, visit about. Right. And it, you know, if we're not going to talk about it, who is going to be the person to talk about it? You know, you, you very well could be that person in your family who's sort of responsible for fixing the technology, right? Because every family has, you know, people they go to for that kind of thing. So helping our family members become more secure is, is important. So I think I will, uh, actually go back down to the bottom of the notes for tonight. And talk uh, about another Apple article. So this is from Mac Rumors on March 21st, which I think that's today, right? No, it was yesterday. Today's the 22nd. Uh, and this article says everything Apple announced today under three minutes. And so they've got a video, which I actually uh, watched yesterday that um, does this recap of announcements. But we have been mentioning on the show, because we oftentimes talk about Google rumors and Apple rumors and other things like that, uh, we thought that Apple was going to be doing an event. If not in March, they were going to do one in April. But what they ended up doing was just sort of having a PR release and uh, announcing a bunch of new things. And so this this is a big deal for schools, Right. Uh, as far as I'm remembering, you know, to get new iPads for teachers, um, it's it's been more in the $500 range. And I have really been um, taking advantage of the opportunity to purchase some used iPads, some u- used iPad Air 2s and Air 1s. Um, but now they've got a new 9.7-inch iPad that's the same size as the original iPad. But the price point is $329.00. And so that is very exciting it has an a9 chip and that actually replaces the iPad air 2 so um, Apple you know has has changed up you know different their different lines and we've got as probably you do at your school if you've got iPads a variety of different models and so the only time we've really run into issues my wife has run into some issues with her iPad twos this is her fourth year, I think, of one-to-one um, iPad teaching at Positive Tomorrows in Oklahoma City. She teaches third and fourth grade. Uh, they've run into some issues with their older iPad 2s with newer Bluetooth items that wouldn't necessarily pair, I think, like Dash and Dot and some other, other kinds of Bluetooth uh, peripherals. Um, the other thing that we've run into just this year is we had a STEM club teacher at our high school in our upper division who wanted to use Swift Playgrounds, which is the new free um, app and environment that Apple has on the iPad for learning how to program apps for the for iOS. Um, I actually have not utilized a Swift Playground yet, um, but that will not run on a fourth-generation iPad. And we've got fourth-generation iPads in one library, and we have iPad Airs, um, Air Ones, I think, in in the other. And I think I'm getting that right. Um, so anyway, th- we run into that issue because some of our iPads wouldn't work. Well, in this case, um, this this really looks nice as as a as a price point. Um, so three hundred and twenty nine dollars from Apple for a thirty two gig, four hundred and twenty nine for a hundred and twenty eight gig. Um, it's also significant that they're not selling the sixteen gigabyte, right? I've been recommending that, and as we've purchased iPads for school, I haven't bought any more sixteen gig iPads. I just don't think that has enough memory, uh, for the upgrade, and also just for storage for storing video and photos, and then also apps that you're going to run, especially, you know, certain apps like Lexia and, and other ones that you know can take a fair. Fair bit of storage space, so this is really uh, exciting. Uh, good news that 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 price point is coming down, and um, you know, if you are looking to to upgrade your iPads or looking to to purchase new ones, um, that's that's a that's a good that's a good price point and um, something exciting for schools. So, we are just a little bit beyond the halfway point. We started a few minutes late tonight. Um again I will kind of give a, a station identification this is the EdTech Situation Room coming to you tonight from Oklahoma City this is the first show this is our, our 44th episode but this is actually the the first show that we haven't had any guests we will have we we have had shows before where we've had two guests and then one guest just goes offline because his internet uh, fails. And that actually happened the first time that, that Jen Carey was on here with me and uh, she had to carry the show by herself and she was the guest. So that was not very, very hostly of me. But uh, anyway, we typically have two or three of us that are on and we'll be going back and forth with banter, you know, talking about these articles. But tonight I resolve that the show will go on. Uh, even though we, we had some last minute cancellations, um, in part because we've got this really long list of links and things that I was looking forward to talking about. So, if, by the way, you listen to the show, I would love to hear from you. Jason would as well. And you can reach out to us the best way is on Twitter. Um, I am W Fryer on Twitter. Jason is Tech Savvy Teach. And you can also uh, tweet the show at EdTechSR. And uh, that is actually the best way to find out what. Changes we might be making. Normally we are here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, but tonight we are here at 8 p.m. Central uh, making accommodations for East Coast schedules, and we will be doing that next week as well. So next week, if all goes a- according to plan, which doesn't always happen, we'll be joined by the wonderful Maine educators Alice Barr and Cheryl Oakes. So I think I'm going to... Um, I've got another section here called fake news, AI and technology, dark arts and elections. But since we've been talking about a lot of security stuff, I think I'm going to actually take us to some screen time and and digital citizenship articles. And the first one uh, will add a little bit of levity. Um, By the way, I see that we've got a live viewer that has joined. So if you want to uh, type there into the, the text chat on the right side of the YouTube screen, you can let me know, where you are if you want to disclose your identity, I uh, would love to know where you're tuning in from tonight. Um the article this is this is not an article, this is a video. Uh and, and maybe everyone else besides me has seen this, but this is a weird Al Yankovic video called Stop Forwarding That Crap to Me. <laughs> and um hopefully that title is not offensive to you, but um I'm I'm sure all of us that are on email have Somebody on our address book that loves to forward us stuff, right? And, um, anyway, this is a, a humorous take on that. And it, it mentions things like Snopes and, you know, talking about not forwarding urban legends and myths. And, and the serious issue here is, right, that we are all publishers today in this information landscape. Um, yes, we publish information when we, when we share things with email, when we forward things on. Um, as we publish things on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on any of these kind of platforms, I mean, we are publishing information. So we're making decisions about what it is we want to forward on. And, um, you know, it's, I think one of the, one of the guidelines that's good about this is, right? We li- It is positive to subscribe to a channel of information that we want to receive. In fact, if you're listening to this right now, uh, more than likely you're listening to the audio version as an audio podcast. You may be watching uh, the video version replaying on YouTube or the video version you could download. You know, when you subscribe to that channel, you are expecting a particular kind of content, and so that's important as you as you create a channel. It's a little more vague and ambiguous when you create a personal channel. I've, I've struggled with this myself with Facebook. In fact, I, I I joke, but it's in all seriousness, that my wife had threatened to unfollow me or unfriend me on Facebook a few years ago when I had set up an automatic cross post. So every time I shared something on Twitter, it went over to Facebook, and she was like, Wes, this is just this is too much. You know, it's, and it's like this, this weird Al Yankovic video, you know, stop forwarding that crap to me. It was too much. Um, so what I have pretty much figured out I, I want to do in terms of Facebook, because we all get to decide how we want to use these platforms, is to use Facebook more for just personal updates. And every once in a while, I am sharing a link to a blog post that, that I wrote, I shared, for instance, that security post, um, because I know there's people who, who follow me and, and are connected to me on Facebook that that might benefit, you know, but in general, that tends to be personal. There's not a ton of, I don't really share much political. Boy, isn't that tough today with everything that's happening, um, politically. Um, I think I did share, uh, what, uh, what I thought was a pretty funny article the other day, um, that was political, but anyway, figuring out how we're going to, what we're going to share on what channels, right? And if you're creating a channel, you know, and it's, and it's your own personal channel, then I guess it's going to, you know, a lot of times be a reflection of just of you and your personality. But then there's other times where we create a focus channel and we're going to really let people know, Hey, this, this channel, whether that's a Twitter channel, whether that's a blog that we set up, um, an Instagram feed or Instagram, you know, account, um, or we're going to, to set you know, something, something else up. It, th- this, uh, this is going to be, you know, about writing and about, you know, um book authorship, or, or this is going to be about, you know, going outside and and the benefits of of exercise and and hiking in the outdoors or whatever you know those kind of different channels. So the this that, so that's that's an important skill and thing to kind of navigate right. And this fits into identity. This is one of the things I think that's so challenging about growing up today. If you are a young person, um, is that you know you have. This magnifying glass potentially on your life and this visibility to what you share and do and to who you're figuring out you are, um, through social media that we didn't have when I was growing up and, and in all previous generations. And so lots so of benefits to this, but there's definitely a lot of challenges. And I wonder, and this kind of ties into the next article, the degree to which that promotes anxiety and leads to stress. Um, we had a conversation this week in a meeting that I was attending at school about anxiety and high levels of anxiety, uh, especially among our high school uh, students. And there's a general perception that levels of anxiety and stress are are higher now than they ever have been. And and somebody at the meeting did mention technology. You know there. There is a lot of anxiety that can come from information overload and from too much information and from just the, I guess, the sheer volume of it, just you know, weighing weighing on us. Um, well, this article, which is the next one I have, or the it's listed first, I guess, under Screen Time Digital Citizenship, is from the New York Times on March the 13th, and it says, "Are teenagers replacing drugs with smartphones?" And so this is not a you know, referee journal research article, um, this is an opinion piece, but what they're saying is that rates of teenage alcohol abuse and drug use are actually declining. And this is coincident with the rise in the smartphone and social media. And so the authors are wondering because there are biological effects to, you know, having, um, you know your your screen on and receiving messages and and likes and being able to interact with people and and, and text messages, all of that it's really powerful. Um, I think this may be the article where they mentioned you know Silicon Valley has been spending a couple decades trying to get us addicted to our phones or or more specifically addicted to the apps that they create. Um, one of the the most useful and provocative articles that I think has been shared on, on this show was one that Jason mentioned a number of shows back, um, that the same psychology used on slot machines in, you know, gambling casinos is used by app developers to try to encourage people to, um, utilize their app and just keep on, keep on coming back. So, um, this article uh, from the New York Times is provocative it doesn't doesn't say with with any certainty you know if this is true, but it points out the correlation kind of like on a hot day, ice cream sales go up does that necessarily you know is that causal? Um, there's a lot of other factors there, but we do see these, these uh, rates of smartphone use among teens and then decreasing drug and alcohol abuse. So I guess if that is the trade off, if that is happening, if, if kids, you know, because it's harder to be bored today if you have a smartphone and, and you're connected to the internet and, and your friend base, uh, perhaps that, that's a good trade off. So yay, shout out to Selena, who is in Ada, Oklahoma. Thank you for telling me that you're here. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, this is very unusual. This is our 44th episode of the EdTech Situation Room and our first time to not have at least two of us here on the show. Uh, usually we've got two or three of us, and we've had several different intervening things happen that have, uh, that have come up. So if you want to take a look at the show notes, you can point your web browser over to edtechsr.com and click links, or just go to edtechsr.com slash links. And um, so far tonight, and we've got probably about 15 more minutes, um, we have gone through a couple uh, new articles about Apple and their announcements and uh, Amazon Kindle um, share to to iOS, um, some articles about security, and then we just talked a little bit about screen time and digital citizenship. A lot of times here on the show, we do not get through all of the articles, um, but that's in large part due to the fact that we've got a couple people chiming in with ideas and things like that. And tonight, you are just stuck with me. So, Selena, if you have any questions or responses that you would like to share, feel free to put those into the chat room, and I will do my best to field those questions. And, hey, we will make this an interactive experience. Um, what I'd like to take us to next, I guess, is the section that I titled fake news, AI for artificial intelligence and technology, dark arts in elections. And I really will look forward to hopefully getting some feedback from Jason and possibly others um, about these articles. But when, when we were on spring break last week, driving as we did 24 hours out to California and 24 hours back, probably the most interesting articles that I read when I was not driving was, were the, were this series of articles. And so um, the first one I think I actually read was Jane Mayer's article in the New Yorker, and it's called the reclusive hedge fund tycoon behind the Trump presidency. And let me say, this is not a political show, right? So I'm not just going to dump, jump over the deep end, uh, in, in analyzing the Trump pres- presidency, the tack that we've talked about before on the show. And, and the reason this is so relevant is because artificial intelligence is a huge trend that is impacting, technology today. It is impacting society. And it's one of those really big things. Like we, we talked a few weeks ago on the show, how at one of the recent Google events, uh, Larry Page and Sundar Pachai, those are the two founders of Google. I think it was Larry Page who said, you know, this is the next big thing. You know, search is tremendous for Google, but artificial intelligence and, and, and part of the vision for this really is personal assistance. We're seeing the emergence of this now with Siri on, on the iPhone and of course, iPads and now even on laptops, uh, we have the Amazon Alexa, we've got the Google Home, and then I think Microsoft has something with, uh, with their assistant. All of these companies are really angling to create artificial intelligence agents that are going to be able to make our lives a lot, a lot easier. You know, and some things are amazing on vacation, you know, having a good Internet connection, which is not true, by the way, all the way across I-40, driving to California from Oklahoma. But in most spots (laughs) where you still have LTE connectivity, um, you know, with Siri and we have a subscription to Apple Music, I mean, I can say, you know, well, hey, hey, Siri, play Southern Cross by Jimmy Buffett, you know, and here comes. Here's Southern Cross by Jimmy Buffett. amazing right you'll need to unlock your iPhone first I knew that um that's this is one of my favorites favorite songs to be listening to. That's amazing, right? Oh my gosh, I dreamed of, I didn't even dream of that because I didn't even imagine that could have been possible. You know, when I was growing up in school and college and everything, I was one of those people that liked to make mixtapes, right? And to have CDs. And in college, I would borrow CDs from a bunch of people and then make a, a cassette tape that would be a, a mixtape of, of music that wasn't just in my own library. So there are ways that artificial intelligence is changing our lives in, in real positive ways. Um, and a lot of the things that it's doing are a little bit more like parlor tricks. But, you know, in the car, I don't want to be driving and texting. So I can say things like, hey, Siri, what's the temperature? It's 64 degrees right now. You know, so those kind of things of, of just sort of a factual nature. Not that big of a deal. It's cool um and it's nice, but it's really not changing changing my life in fundamental ways. Well, take us to the article by... Um, by Jane Mayer, and by the way, I have not read her book, but I put it into the show notes. Jane Mayer is the author of the book "The Hidden Histo- Dark Money: The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical right and This article um, from The New Yorker talks about a company called Cambridge Analytica and also talks about a hedge fund manager uh, named Mercer and the role that they 've played in the trump electoral victory and We've talked about Cambridge Analytica before, and this is a company that claims to have thousands of data points about two or three hundred million Americans. And in this article, they say that there were, I think it says like 50,000 variants of some ads that were running during the campaign, specifically approaching an issue that they knew because of all the data points they have through Facebook and through Social media and also through, you know, rewards programs that we sign up, we go to the drugstore, or the grocery store, and all kinds of things, you know, ways that they thought this issue will sway this particular voter. And so the Trump campaign invested millions of dollars in these. Really heated contests and where the Clinton administration or the Clinton administration, the Clinton campaign, Hillary Clinton campaign um, was focused more on traditional poll numbers. Um, The Trump campaign went whole hog for the for this artificial intelligence approach. And this is a fascinating article. One of the researchers who developed um, these techniques uh, had actually been approached by some businesses to monetize this and was very concerned about how how this would be used. And one of the things in terms of democracy, let's take this to a school standpoint if you're teaching social studies, talking about the elections, the role of the FCC, the the uh the Federal Communications Commission in terms of of regulating political advertising uh, is important, right? We have rules in the United States about uh, advertising. It's not a complete anything goes. But these kinds of, of ads, dark ads, unless you are paying for the ad or you are Facebook or you're receiving the ad, you don't see the ad because it's customized. It's not a billboard. You can just walk outside and see. And so there's another article that I uh, put in here by Barrett Anderson. This is from February the 12th, 2017. Oh, and this is some scary stuff. It's called The Rise of the Weaponized AI Propaganda Machine. And you can't see the titles of all these books that are behind me, but I have read, you know, quite a bit of, uh, of Noam Chomsky and uh, uh, Theodore Draper and all kinds of other folks, you know, writing about U.S. foreign policy and Iran-Contra scandals and, you know, POW MIAs in Southeast Asia. I've read lots of lots of stuff, right? Um that that touch on issues of information warfare and psychological warfare. Uh I went to the Air Force Academy. That's where I graduated college. We took different, you know, military strategy courses, uh, counterinsurgency and and you know some things that we studied academically. And of course we had other kinds of training that we did. There was uh survival training and we had POW training, other kinds of things. Some of this stuff that we have sort of might relegate out to CIA, military, thinking about the uses of propaganda uh, to conduct psychological operations against a population, this actually happened in the last election in the United States. And it is ongoing today with companies that are employing Cambridge Analytica and other companies that are using AI and all of this data um, to you know, further different kinds of ends, in these cases, political ends. So there is some really important room here for advocacy. We do not have laws in the United States today that, number one, let us know what these companies have about us specifically. What kind of data have you collected? pardon me. And number two, we don't have the ability to say, you know, yes, you can use this data for, for this or, 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 or not an article I don't have, but I may still drop into the show notes after the show. There is a proposal right now before Congress to allow internet service providers, ISPs to sell our browsing history to companies. Right. And, uh, A lot of people don't realize this, but when you are on the internet, unless you are using a special browser like the Tor browser, T-O-R browser, um, to specifically mask who you are and your identity, your service provider who, who provides you internet either through a cable modem probably or through a DSL connection, they have a log. Every single computer has its own Mac address, M-A-C, and that doesn't mean Apple computer. It means machine code. And so that Mac address is part of the packet of information that every time something is sent or received back and forth, you know, and it comes to your computer or goes from your computer, it has your Mac address. And so they've got these logs of everywhere you have ever been on the internet. Well, we've had privacy protections for those and, we are at risk right now in the United States of having those sold to third parties who want to buy them. And then of course market to us probably, I mean, but right. What are they going to do? You know, if that stuff is for sale, you don't know what, what, it, what they're going to do. And, and this is one of the things we've talked consistently on the show about is this idea of privacy. Um, I shared a TEDx talk up in Enid, Oklahoma in November last year called uh, digital citizenship in the surveillance state. And, We really need to address this misperception that, oh, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not a criminal, so who cares, you know, if the government tracks everything about me and knows everything about me? Because there's multiple reasons for that. Number one, um, we, we all have a right to privacy. It's a human right. And there are conversations which we should be able to have in private that shouldn't just be all recorded. And since the Snowden revelations, and then we just have this Vault 7 release. I think we talked about it last week with Miguel. That was a WikiLeaks release. You know, we've got, um, I don't know if it was Vizio, different kinds of TVs that have uh, recorders, and the companies were actually able to surreptitiously, and, and hackers could turn this on and be able to record your conversations. Anyway, privacy matters. We, we need to defend our privacy rights. Um, and also, you know, we're not sure who is going to use this information and this data. Um, again, I'm not going to go too far afield here on the political realm. But when you read these articles about how artificial intelligence and, and psychological operations have been and are being conducted against and to the people of the United States for political ends, um, you know, those might not be things that you're excited about and wanting to support. And we don't currently have uh, rights in this country to be able to, you know, stop that kind of thing. So this is really huge. And the rise of fake news and all of these different websites and the ways in which they're amplifying each other and and these the fringe, uh, you know, alt-right, as it's called, has really become mainstream is is all tied into this. So the last thing that I will point out in this section – is a series of articles, and I have not read all of these yet, but Jonathan Albright is, I'm pretty sure... Uh, a researcher in psychology who originally had developed some of these methods of saying hey if we if we look at all this data, you know I can predict things about you and, and may know things about you that you know your your significant other, your spouse, um, you know people in your family they may not know about you, but I can predict these things with a lot of accuracy but he 's chosen to stay in an academic realm and and really you know now shine a spotlight on this. Well, he has a series of posts that he shared on medium about the election and fake news. Um, and I've got a link to that. And so Jonathan Albright on Twitter has got a four character handle. It's D one G I, which is weird. I don't know what that means. Maybe somebody can, can explain that, but the, that is a a series of articles and he subtitles it something like Mr. Robot meets house of cards meets academic hackathon, deep data journalism, IDK, all open data and tools used left, right. Um, This is something that a lot of people need to be aware of. And, and I don't think they are at this point. So, Last little topics here, and then we will sign off for tonight. Um, the last section of of articles we have I titled them surveillance and privacy. And some of these are articles. That, there's a lot of overlap here between the privacy issues and the digital security issues and the surveillance issues. Um, one of our favorite podcasts here on the show that we've mentioned a lot is Note to Self. Note to Self is produced by W H Y Y out of New York, and Manush Samarodi is the the hostess uh, or the or the I guess, producer. She's the voice of Note to Self. And so they had a show on March the 15th called Government Secrets Worth Leaking or Keeping. And it's a fascinating uh, episode about something called a Stingray Phone Tracker. And so these are electronic devices that the police now own in many municipalities. And One of the things that they can do is if they find out from an Internet service provider, hey, such and such phone is in this neighborhood. They couldn't pinpoint exactly where it is, but the service provider can say it's in this neighborhood. They take this phone, uh, Stingray phone tracker, and they drive in the neighborhood. And the way that phone technology works today, uh, again, every phone has its own IMEI number, which is like a MAC address that identifies it, and it's constantly going out there to the tower to say, hey, here I am, here I am, uh, in case they get a phone call and it knows to make the connection. Well, these uh, Stingray phone trackers will actually send beams of electromagnetic radiation through the walls of your home, um, and your cell phone will think it is just responding to another cell phone tower. And one of the issues that is raised by this is that these uh, Stingray phone trackers in in some cases, and maybe all, we just, we don't know. Some of this is classified and a lot of this is being hush hush among law enforcement. It can collect lots of information, not just metadata about who you called and when you called, um, but the actual information that's being tracked and transited. And so it's pretty interesting that law enforcement in the United States wants to really keep this on the down low. In fact, this was, It was a it wasn't even known publicly until uh, somebody who was in prison and had been researching this um, basically, you know, came came out and and did the research to prove that these were available. And and then it it came out in the court record that they did. Um, But uh, one of the things they talk about in this episode is that there have been cases in the United States of local municipality police forces. Um, disguising and hiding these budget items so that they didn't reveal in their community that they had these devices to utilize. And part of, I think, the note to self privacy position is that, it's important that we have the fourth amendment in the United States that protects us from um, unjustified search and seizure. It's important that we have courts that are involved. There needs to be limits to police power. We don't want to give police forces anywhere unlimited ability, you know, to conduct any search that they want to um, you know, hold people without uh, cause for unlimited amounts of time. You know, rights are important and um, we're seeing we're seeing an erosion of, uh, of privacy, certainly. And there's, there's a need for advocacy on this. So on that issue of what can I do? Um, the second article here is from the Mozilla blog. They, they create the Firefox browser. Uh, but this is back from November the 17th, 2016. I just learned about this. It's called Firefox Focus. It is a free, fast browser for the iPhone. So I'm an a avid iPhone user, and I primarily use the Safari browser, but I've got a, a folder of pictures here, and I'll put in the show notes. I think I, I did a tweet about these recently. My main browsers I use are Safari and Chrome, uh, but I also use Puffin some because it supports Flash content that isn't supported on other browsers. I've used Dolphin a little bit, but this Firefox Focus is a private browser that doesn't track. Now, for me, that's really hard to use a browser that that I'm not logged into because I'm using those tools I mentioned at the top of the show, like uh, Flipboard and Pocket and Nuzzle and Twitter, and so simply browsing the internet anonymously, that's not the way I, I, I sort of roll online. I'm usually using my social networks and my connections to find articles and share articles and to save them and things like that. But uh, it, it's important, I think, for us to consider the value of not being tracked and and being private. And so Firefox Focus allows you to do that. The last article, unless Selena has a question. Selena, be awesome if you want to text in a question. It can be about anything technology related. I will do my best to answer. Um, this article is, um, from Apple Insider on March the 14th, 2017. And it says that Apple and others back Google in opposing FBI warrant for overseas email. And this is a really big deal because the nature of the internet has been that, you know, information will, will traverse, um, routers and switches without identifying that information. And it'll just, it'll just freely pass uh, depend, you know, irrespective of what the the political boundary is and uh, laws with respect to housing that information are going to be respected for that particular country. And so when it comes to things like surveillance, um, you know, the Snowden, Revelations in 2013, um, revealed lots of troubling things, um, including the fact that AT&T had colluded with the United States government to put these massive, essentially suction hoses, you know, on the internet to try and, and just capture all the data that was coming and traversing these, these central nodes where fiber optic cables come into the United States. Well, um, if law enforcement wants to get information, you know they have, and if they want somebody, that's an extradition request, right? When they ask to to have somebody extradited from that country to face prosecution in in another country, uh, information requests are supposed to follow the rules of of that country. Well, what this court case is dealing with is saying to Google, hey, you know, you have a U.S. base. And therefore, no matter where the data is stored, you know, if we ask you for it, you have to give it to us. It doesn't matter if it's in Ireland or it's in India or or it's in New Zealand or wherever. And so this this actually has a lot of important implications for the Internet. Um, in order for the Internet to be, I think, the wonderful sharing platform that it is, um, we need to have a global Internet. You know, not a proprietary Internet, not just a, a U.S. Internet. And, um a lot of the things that we've learned about in terms of surveillance and, and things that the, the National Security Agency and the CIA have done, um, you know, does not endear us to folks around the world, uh, when it comes to, you know, internet sharing and privacy. And, and it, and it challenges us, right? It challenges us to think about these issues and to think about how, you know, we might want to be using secure tools and, you know, what does it mean if all of my conversations are being listened to and uh, documented and recorded by others, you know, that might not be a big deal to me, but on the other hand, um there's all kinds of different things happening with respect to immigration and national boundaries. And we mentioned on the show a couple weeks ago that when you're coming through customs, even back into the United States, you're not in the United States. You're kind of in a no-man's land uh, where they have all kinds of rights to, to do things to you um, and to your information. And there's some important stuff to think about here. So I'm going to wrap up the show, as we always do, with a geek of the week. Uh, my geek of the week is a website and service called Securi. Uh, S E C U R I for WordPress security and hack fixes. And I will not go into tons of detail, but basically uh, over the last month, I've been dealing with some significant hacks to some of my websites and um, the, f- uh, the first one I got resolved by uh, restoring a backup using my service provider's backup that they had for for my main my main blog, but in the case of another hack that happened, I literally had thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of what I think is called a MySQL injection hack on my WordPress site and I had to pay two hundred dollars to security and they completely cleaned it up and uh, have also put in um, a, a layer of security that called a firewall that's you know, further protecting my site. Uh, and so I just want to give them a shout out and a big uh, thank you. So, um, Selena, thank you so much for sharing your question. She says, Mac Rumors article on customer accounts being held ransom. Heard uh, validation. I'm trying to uh, look and see if where I put that one in there. Um, the, yeah, I'm not, I I've, I did, I, I haven't, Yeah, I think I did see that today. Um, Well, heck. We'll do this really quick. So I'm going to go to the Mac Rumors website. I'm not, I don't think I've got that one in the show notes. Um, So I'm taking a look to see if I can find that really quick. Yeah, there we go. This was 11 hours. Hackers claim access to 300 million iCloud accounts. Say Apple refused to pay the $75,000 ransom. Um, I would say, first of all, I think the Mac rumors is a is a very legit site. I've never known of them to be a, a fake news site or, I mean, they're definitely picking up on rumors, right? So if, if somebody says, you know, I think the new iPad's going to be 15 inches, you know, in size or something like that. There's definitely rumors that they share that don't, you know, prove to be legit. Um, but this is actually referencing a motherboard article. It says a single hacker or group of hackers who have identified themselves as the Turkish crime family allegedly have access to at least 300 million pardon me, iCloud accounts, but they're willing to delete the alleged cache of data. If Apple pays a ransom by early next month, according to a report from motherboard. So, um, I have not, pardon me. I'm gonna have to go in the show and get a drink of water. Um, I, I haven't heard anything else beyond that. I did I did actually see that headline today, and I'll drop that into the, the show notes as well. Um, but maybe on that note, when it comes to security, um, it's very important for us to back up our information. Again, I will give a, a, a personal plug to this December 2016 article about Give Your Family the Gift of Digital Security that has 11 different suggestions for what you should do, um, having our data backed up, having it backed up regularly, using secure passwords, turning on two-factor authentication, communication, um, and then encouraging others in our family to do the same. Um, And then I guess also you know, knowing folks to go to when when we have when we have an issue and asking questions, right? Continuing to talk about this stuff. Um, so Selena says that their district was was attacked recently. And it, if you could, if there's any links to um, articles about that, Selena, that you could tweet to me, uh, either at etechsr or at w fryer, I would love to check that out. Again, not because I want to throw anybody's school district under the bus, but because these issues are real, right? And we need to use the current events that are happening around us, not to just fan the flames of fear and and help you know make people scared but we do need to in most cases i would say today with with regard to security change our ways and change our behavior right because the tendency of most people when it comes to passwords is to use a simple password and to use the same one everywhere and there are many practices that we have that are not secure. Like we don't change our password very often, or we may not require, you know, everybody in our district to do that. We may not have even the option for two-step verification turned on. Um, and so we're just going to keep hearing more and more about those kinds of issues. So I think I have gone perhaps a little bit beyond 60 minutes. I've done it. We've survived a EdTech SR episode. Uh, With just Wes, uh, normally when you tune in to EdTechSR, you will at least have two voices that will be chatting about the technology news of the past week or so and sharing an educational spin on what those articles may mean for the classroom, for schools, for teachers, um, as well as for students and parents. So I thank you for tuning in. I encourage you to to tune in next week. Again, we'll be an hour earlier coming to you at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain, 6 p.m. Pacific. And that will be a special show with Alice Barr and Cheryl Oakes from Maine. So until next time, stay safe, stay secure, and stay savvy.